Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 17 in our Bibles. If you, like I am, are someone who is prone to anxiety and stress, uh, what is it that we're after? What do we want? Well, we, we want to be told that everything's going to be okay, right? Whatever it is that you're concerned about, whatever's looming large in your future, you, you want certainty. We, we want truth. We want a perspective from the outside saying everything's going to be all right. We want good news. But, but it's, it's possible to be resistant to any kind of outside perspective. You know, if, if you're a persistent pessimist, if you're like a, a lobbyist for the half-empty glass, then people can attempt to encourage you that they can try to bring to mind some other things that are also true that maybe you're failing to consider and, and you are just immovable. You are determined to live underneath your Eeyore cloud, and, and you won't accept in, into evidence anything that doesn't validate your perspective that life is going to tank. No, you don't get it, man. It, it's going to be really bad. Everything is about to fall apart. You see, facts and realities from outside of our experience have the potential to bring us to a place of joy but we can be comfortable exactly where we are. We, we don't want our worldview to be disrupted. If you're, if you're someone who struggled with shame, either because of something that you've done or something that was done to you, that can be a defining and controlling feature of your life. It, it calls the shots. It limits what you're allowed to participate in or enjoy. And, and yet it becomes so familiar to you. And so you can be told that you're forgiven, that you're cleansed, that you are loved by God, but shame is all you've known. It's, it's colored everything. And it's strangely comfortable. You're, you're not sure that you're ready to leave it behind. Or if you're in a conflict with someone, then peace is available but there are certain things that you have to be willing to leave behind. You have to abandon being right at all costs. Uh, more than likely, yet you have to take ownership of the fact that you have been wrong, either in your actions or your attitude. You, you can walk back into fellowship with someone, but that, that means walking away from what has felt so compelling, so right to you, you need to acknowledge that something else is true. But often people just stay alone in their bitterness. Well, in all these situations, freedom comes from being adjusted, from, from abandoning a set of beliefs and submitting to new realities in the, in the language of the Bible, from repenting and believing. And the past few Sundays, we've been in a series called Easter Continue. We've been considering the impact of the resurrection of Jesus on the world. And the resurrection changes everything. It is the fact from outside of our experience that, that tells us despite how things might look now, everything is being made new. What, what, what is sad and hopeless in this world doesn't get the last word. That the narrative of death has been disrupted. It's been interrupted with indestructible life. 
But, but to come to believe that, to come to receive that, we have to abandon our old thinking. We have to let go of the perspective that we've clinged to and give way to this truth that there is a Redeemer who lives. The question is, is that right? Is that a good thing? To tell people everywhere that they need to acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ? That despite their own personal views and preferences, that there's something more ultimate that you need to believe. Well, next week we're going to begin our study of the letter of 1 Corinthians and leading us there. We've been thinking about how Easter launched a mission. It's a mission that has a particular strategy to it for people to come to faith in the gospel and join the community of the church. And it's a mission that exerts a claim over every nation, every culture, Every religious system, but it's designed to bring freedom and joy. We're going to visit the book of Acts this morning, and this book tells the story about how the the news about the resurrection moved outward from Jerusalem, onward to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, and eventually has found us as well. And this morning, we're going to see how the gospel arrived in the city of Corinth as it's made its way along the Mediterranean. We've got a map up here of uh, Paul's second missionary journey, and, and there are certain cities he visits along the way. He stops in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, and this morning we're going to see him arrive in Athens, and we're going to spend most of our time there, and then he's going to finally show up in Corinth. And so let, let's read this together. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, Maybe know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. It was the Twitter of the day, right? So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I've passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. 
and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and they were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack and harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Let's pray. Oh Lord, it is clear from this text that we are a people who need to be persuaded to believe. We've been singing about how there is superior power and worth in the blood of Jesus against every rival. Lord, we believe this either for the first time this morning or the hundredth time. And would we let go of anything that stands in the way of us experiencing all that you intend this good news to be in our life? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We'll see a few different things in our passage this morning. We, we notice how the gospel confronts assumptions in every culture, how it claims authority over every culture, how it creates access in every culture, and it continues to advance in every culture. And hopefully we'll get through all of those. All right, so first, the gospel confronts assumptions in every culture. Paul interacts with a variety of people in these passages, but, but you could describe them all with, with the phrase that he uses in verse 20 of chapter 17. He says that they are very religious, and, 
and that's a bit of an ambiguous word, isn't it? It's true in, in Greek. It's true in how we tend to use that term today as well. It can mean fervent. It can mean superstitious. Is he complimenting them? Is he throwing a jab their way? But, but the point is that Paul isn't engaging people who are a blank slate. They have existing ideas and belief systems. They're, they're things that they're passionate about. And that they sincerely hold to. They're already committed to something. And we get insight from these exchanges into how the gospel challenges ideas in different cultures. And how that affects the approach that Paul takes. Notice how he engages the Jews. We just read this in verse 5 of chapter 18. Paul was occupied with the word. It's what he was always doing. And he was testifying to the Jews that The Christ was Jesus. And Paul's ministry in the synagogues for the Jews, it's often talked about in this way in the book of Acts. For them, the Christ or the Messiah was already a category they had. It made sense to them. And Paul's saying, that title, that role that you're looking for somebody to fill... That's already been met. It's been met in Jesus. And he would open up the Hebrew scriptures and he would show them the reasons why they should come to see that. And so for the Jews, there was a high degree of what you might describe as gospel intelligibility. They were monotheists. They believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They read the same Bible as Paul. They had the same values and moral standards. They, they held to what we might call today the Judeo-Christian worldview. They, they shared common assumptions and starting points. And yet, Paul still calls them to repent and believe in Jesus, to move from where they are to a place of faith in Christ. And we'll see in a moment how he confronts their assumptions here, but they had a lot of the backstory in order for the conversation to start pretty far in. But, but that's not the case for, for most of the people that Paul speaks to in the Greco-Roman culture. In, in Athens, he interacts with people in, in the marketplace as well as in the Areopagus. It's kind of like talking to hipsters at the farmer's market and with professors at the university. And, and they're coming from a very different place than the Jews. Not only had they never heard of Moses, uh, much less ever cracked open a Bible, but they had very opposing beliefs. They were polytheists. They held to the pantheon of gods. And and that affects how they hear. You know, some of what Paul says just doesn't register for them. They, they, They think he's talking about foreign deities because he was proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. And the name Jesus is masculine and the noun resurrection is feminine in Greek. And and it was common in the ancient world to kind of hold the gods in male and female pairs. And and so they're like, man, you think that Jesus guy hooked up with that resurrection girl? That's cool, I guess. You know, they, they just take the gospel and they try to fit it in to what already makes sense to them. And, and that tendency to just tag on Another god or god or goddess without that really changing anything about you, it reflected the fact that this was a highly pluralistic society. In the Roman Empire, there, there was government-instituted pluralism. And so Rome would conquer a new land, 
And they would just bring on whatever, whatever gods people worshipped in that area. They just would add it to their pantheon. And they would insist that those people worshipped the Roman gods as well. Having an exclusive view was seen as a threat to social unity. And so Luke says that the people of Athens, they, they were always willing to try on something new. They would subscribe to the latest spiritual advice YouTube channel. Just bring it on here. And, and they wanted to hear what Paul was talking about. At least until the point that he tells them that they were wrong. And Paul spoke with philosophers, with Epicureans and Stoics. The Epicureans were, were like the materialists of their day. They didn't believe in life after death. And so the vision of the good life was just kind of get what you can here and now, live it up, experience good things. They, they, they were a bit like agnostic secularists. The Stoics were more pantheistic. They thought that you could kind of get control over your life uh, and over your own emotions through the right kind of thinking by seeking to do good to people. And so if you, if you could be better educated and if you were well-intended, then, then you could kind of manage life in a successful way. And, and they believed that the soul lived on in some way after death, but not in a bodily resurrection and so after Paul's preaching creates a stir in the city, they, they bring him into the Areopagus. It's kind of like the town square. And, and, and they, 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 we have a summary here of what Paul says, right? Speeches before the Areopagus, they, they weren't known for their brevity. They were a bit like LCC sermons. Um, and so this isn't everything that he would have said there, but we get a little bit of an outline and it's interesting to pay attention uh, to what he chooses to emphasize. Because Paul's message was the same whether he was speaking to Jews or to Greeks, but here he spends a lot more time talking about the nature of God. You know, it might not be what comes to mind for us when we think of a typical gospel presentation. He, he spends time building what D.A. Carson describes as worldview structures. And there's something to learn from this. Carson writes, a missionary to, to Japan or Thailand or North India would have to learn not only another language or two, but also another culture. No less important, they would have to begin their evangelism farther back. Because many of their hearers would have no knowledge of the Bible at all and would tenaciously hold to some worldview structures that were fundamentally at odds with the Bible. The best schools gave such training to their missionary candidates. But pastors and campus workers were rarely trained along such lines. After all, they were doing nothing more than evangelizing people who shared their own cultural assumptions or at least people located in the same domain of discourse, weren't they? We were naive, of course. It's, it's, it's no secret that our, our nation and our culture has been, been moving away from Judeo-Christian assumptions to something that's more like what Paul found in the pre-Christian world. And, and that often means that we have to, to build a framework with people in which the gospel can be understood. Uh, James K. Smith describes a scenario of, of a church planter who moves from, a, from the Bible Belt to some urban center in, in the Pacific Northwest. You think of Seattle or think of uh, Portland. And, and he's prepared all these 
answers for questions that people might ask about God and the afterlife you know, a generation ago that, that might be you know, questions about why should God accept you into heaven? What, what are you looking for as a reason why you would be allowed into heaven? Uh, more recently, it's about what's missing from your life that's going to be there to give you a sense of meaning and purpose. But he quickly discovers uh, that not only are these questions unanswered, they're unasked. (laughs) Uh, These these aren't nagging questions that these people have. And and so we can't just jump to Christ being the answer to a problem that they don't think that they have. If you think of the gospel under the headings, God, man, Christ, and response. It's a good way to think about the gospel. And God is the righteous creator of the world, humanity, and our sin, our separation from God, what God's done through Jesus to save us, and how we need to respond in, in faith. You, you have all of those in this passage, but Paul spends a lot more time with the first two. And, and you can't skip that step. And for many people, if you lead with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, they'll say, I know. No, <laughs> why wouldn't he? You know, what's not to love? Uh, they don't have some sense, you know, that they need to be forgiven. Why would God have a problem with me? We can't assume they labor under a consciousness of guilt, that they feel like they need to perform for God, or always need to measure up to a standard of what, what is good. We, we're not typically evangelizing Martin Luther. In, in some cases, they wonder, why is this whole God and Christianity thing even worth talking about? Are people, people still talk about that today? And I know that's not true of, of every context, and, and we'll still engage people that have ties to tradition and, and to the Christian past, but you know, we, we need to learn how to pay attention to these things. The other thing to notice as Christianity confronts cultural assumptions is, is, is how it interacts with the background noise that's in different cultures. You, you might call this gospel credibility. They, they describe what Paul says as being strange things to our ears. And you, you can hear their condescension when they say, well, what's this babbler talking about? What, what in the world does he have going on? It, it, some of this sounds ridiculous to them. It just doesn't seem credible. And apparently that's always been the case. That didn't just arrive 20 years ago. It's, it's not just a post-Christian problem. Christianity challenges every culture. But depending on the time and place, it might do, do so for different reasons. You know, in a lot of the, the Western world today, Christianity's sexual ethic is increasingly a stumbling block. But Jesus' message to love your enemies is celebrated. But if you, if you travel to the Eastern world, to, to cultures that tend to emphasize honor and shame, they, they love Christian morals but, but the whole idea that you're supposed to love your enemy is seen as weak and shameful. They can't get past that. And that just goes to show you that if you adjust the truth to try to be relevant today, you just doom yourself to be irrelevant tomorrow or in somewhere else in the world. And you have some of these dynamics in this passage. It says that Paul reasoned with the Jews. And look at verse 3 of chapter 17. 
explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and arise from the dead. And that, and that was the very point that was offensive to them. A crucified Messiah? The Savior, the, the hero, dying like a criminal or a terrorist? That, that's not what we signed up for. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that we preach Christ crucified, a contradiction, a, a stumbling block to Jews. And, and it was a political stumbling block as well. In, in both Thessalonica and, and Corinth, the, the, the Jews want to run Paul out of the city. They, they think he's dangerous. You, you want us to announce as king of the world a man that the Roman Empire condemned as an insurrectionist? Are you kidding me, Paul? Is that really what you're after? And, and so amazingly, they, they, they say in verse 7 that they have no king but Caesar. The Jews are saying this. People that are supposed to have some kind of messianic hope. These are, this is the moral majority crowd. This is the, the family values people. They, they were so close and yet so far. Because the gospel confronted their cultural comfortability. And we haven't been too different in America. Russell Moore says, Christian values were always more popular in American culture than the Christian gospel. That's why one could speak of God and country with great reception in almost any era of the nation's history, but would create cultural distance as soon as one mentioned Christ and him crucified. He says, we cannot build Christian churches on a sub-Christian gospel. People who don't want Christianity don't want almost Christianity. And so before we mourn the loss of cultural Christianity, let's be clear on what exactly has been lost. It's not necessarily the gospel that was there. But for the Greeks, it's the resurrection that was a problem. Look at verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And that's the end of Paul's speech. Right? Resurrection is a trigger word. Even, even though the Athenians prided themselves on being tolerant people, willing to entertain other perspectives, at this point they shut down the discussion. I've heard it said that the champions of tolerance hold the two fundamental tenets. Uh, one, we have an unwavering commitment to free speech. And two, shut up. <laughs> and you see a little bit of that in this, this passage. In, in much of Greek thought that the physical realm was bad. It was dirty. It was seen as being what was wrong. It created all the problems in the world. And, and so to say that someone has come back from the dead in bodily form was to say something that not only was unbelievable, it was like it was immoral. I mean, what kind of twisted person would want to come back here after being set free from all this? And so to proclaim the resurrection in this setting would have been like showing up at a pita rally and grilling hamburger meat that you bought from Walmart. Uh, but what's amazing here is that Paul doesn't flinch from preaching the resurrection. He, he doesn't just speak of Jesus' immortality, about how he lives on in another realm or in our hearts. He uses the one word that would make their skin crawl. 
He does it on purpose. And so, while Paul was willing to adjust his approach to sharing the gospel in in different places, in different contexts, he never adjusts the gospel. He doesn't trim it to make it more acceptable to them. He doesn't run from the strangeness. Something about this is strange to our ears, and that's what he leans into in this moment. Russell Moore describes a conversation he had with a, a, a lesbian political activist and a, a secularist, and, and she had said to him, I just don't get it. I, I don't know anybody today who believes the stuff that you people believe about marriage and sex. It, it's just incredibly strange. And he said, yeah, we believe even stranger things than that. We, we believe that one day a previously dead man is going to show up in the sky on a horse. And, and that's kind of what Paul does here. We, he leans into the strangeness. And that's what we're called to do as well. Articulate it with clarity and with mission. And we do this with the conviction that God has the right to claim authority over every culture. That's how the Great Commission begins that previously dead man standing before his followers and saying, all authority in heaven and every place on this globe belongs to me. Go therefore in to all the nations, make disciples, every people, teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you. We go with Jesus' authority and announce the news that the world so desperately needs to hear. And when Paul's invited to speak, he says in verse 23, what you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. Really, Paul? You're going to claim to know something that they don't? Isn't that a little bit arrogant? He's going to tell them what they don't know, and he's going to call them to change their beliefs. And this feels increasingly strange today. Especially to young people in particular, you, you, you feel the awkwardness of sharing what you believe. It doesn't, it doesn't feel affirming or loving to impose your viewpoint on someone else to tell them that they're not right. E- even if you know you're supposed to evangelize on some mental level, you know that's true, but it, it, it doesn't feel compelling. The lack of validating somebody else's perspective seems wrong. It's, it's a side effect of the enchantment of the age that we've been describing. The, the reality is, though, people do this all the time, and you need to notice this. Right? Even people who think that they're being inclusive. Think of that classic example of the blind men and the elephant, you know, Uh, Some blind men stumble upon an elephant and one of them feels the tail and says it's a rope. One feels the leg and thinks it's a tree. Another feels the trunk and thinks it's a big old snake. And and the point of the the parable is they all had some aspect of the truth, but, but nobody has the whole truth. But you know who has the whole truth is the person telling the story. How you know it's an elephant, man. And, and you're telling everybody else they need to believe this. You need to believe that really all religions have some truth in their own way. You realize the rest of the world doesn't believe that. 
And you're telling them they need to change. You're just assuming everybody else adopts your Western pluralistic views. That's pretty ethnocentric, buddy. Right? You're telling them they need to see it differently. And the reality is, every worldview has a totalizing perspective. It's what a worldview is. It's a view on everything. Uh, the, the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, recently announced that she deeply re- regrets the UK's role in establishing laws in some of its former colonies that are still used today that outlaw, outlaw same-sex relations. And, and these laws were passed under British rule and 37 of the Commonwealth's 53 member nations still have them, many of them in Africa and in Asia. And she commented that these laws were wrong then and wrong now. You see that? She, she passes judgment on these other cultures, not only in the present, but in the past as well, and, and she wants to see them change. And I, I don't fault her for, for doing so, right? She, she wants them to get on the right side of history. But can we be okay with Scripture saying this? Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. Through his risen man. That's the direction that history is heading in. You want to get on the right side of history? This is it. It is heading toward this day where the man who has come back from the life will exercise his judgment over all the earth. And and whether it's the Jewish monotheist or the Roman pluralist or the Greek agnostic, everyone everywhere needs to repent and believe to abandon false hopes and false saviors and come to see the truth. And and, and this account begins with Paul described in Athens as being his spirit was provoked when he saw that the city was full of idols. You ever have that experience? Is your spirit ever disturbed by the belief systems and the idols that hold people captive. These are not innocent ideas. This isn't just about having diverse outlooks. These things enslave. They are deceptive. They, They keep people in places of confusion. Does it grieve you when people are trapped in falsehood? Groping about, but no less lost or blind. Do you realize that in the mysterious plan of God, you've been given the news that can set them free, that can lead them away from their fear and their shame right into joy that God has planned. And Paul's inner disturbance leads to a glad-hearted sharing here. And his authoritative proclamation is not just this empty assertion. It includes things like reasoning and persuasion. And he finds access into the people he's seeking to reach. He locates points of contact in their lives, in their storylines, 
in, in their culture. He, he shows what you could call gospel plausibility. But, but he, he does this by, by demonstrating the limitations of their own ideals. He shows how the gospel answers the very things that, he's at, that they're after. Uh, but the way he does that is pretty surprising, right? He, he quotes their philosophers and their poets. It's like he, he cites a book from the New York Times bestseller list or quotes the lyrics to some song that's at the top of the charts. He, he says that in him we live and move and have our being. And this was a common saying in the Greek world. And he, he quotes the poet Aratus that we are his offspring. How is he able to do that? Well, because all of mankind is made in the image of God, we, we know God at one level and we try to avoid him at another level. So what Paul says in Romans 1. The creation clearly displays what God is like. Our own conscience bears witness to this and yet we suppress the truth. We suppress that knowledge wherever we can. And one way to put it is that all culture expresses the truth and suppresses the truth. It, it does both and we should learn how to look out for both in the movies we watch and the songs we listen to, the, the people that we dialogue with. But what that means is that you'll, you'll always find tensions and contradictions there. Something that's true and a suppression of something that's true. And that creates cracking points in these viewpoints. And what that means is that there's always going to be access. And Paul addresses the mind and the heart here. He, he points out the inconsistencies in their thinking. He says, you, you claim to value these things, but you don't really live as if that's the case. You don't really act like that's true. You see how he puts it in verse 29? Being then God's offspring, what you, what you say you believe, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image formed by the art and imagination of man. In, in other words, if God made you, how can you make God? You know, if, if you're a living, breathing person and, and you're his offspring, you, you think you came from some idol that's not able to speak or act? And, and he calls these things an, an image that's come from the imagination of Man, and what's, what's striking is the very reason that we're able to make images is because we are makers who have been made in the image of the maker. Right? He's shown them that this, this is the case and yet their God is too small for their own poetry. These little idols, they can't bear the weight of even the fact that you're someone who's able to create these kinds of art form and thought. These mute little statues can't do that. You think that's where you've come from? And then, and then he says that we're all his offspring. They didn't get God right and they didn't get humanity right as well. Verse 26 he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. He's, he's confronting the racism of their culture. It's rooted in their ideas of, of human descent that different ethnic groups came to be in different ways. They, they, they thought that the Athenians kind of just sprang directly from the, the land of the continent. They weren't like all those other barbarian immigrants that have totally different lineages. 
And he's, he's telling them, you, you want to say that we're all his offspring, but you don't recognize that we all share the same origin and therefore the same value. And yet you could reverse this argument today. Because in our culture, there, there's rightly an emphasis on racial harmony, but a secular worldview provides no foundation for that. It gives us no reason to believe that human beings are valuable, but you also don't have all of humanity descending from a single human pair. Right? On, on, on Darwinism, there, there are no fewer than 10,000 different lineages for the human race. And some of us with more Neanderthal DNA than others. I won't try to point out who's who here. Uh, but none made in the image of God with dignity and worth. But Paul presses on their perceived self-sufficiency here. He's showing the cracks in the foundation. And and you can do that at the philosophical level or even more downstream, exposing the weaknesses of the cultural narratives. For example, you know, take the you need to be true to yourself line that's that's shared today, right? That the, the best thing you can do is follow your desires, man. Don't let anybody else stand in the way of what you want. You you just go and get it. You be true to you. Really? I thought the reason we had a whole Me Too hashtag is because we were fed up with people just acting on their own desires and impulses. You, You see, these slogans are unlivable no matter how often they're reinforced. But he he doesn't just deconstruct bad thinking here. He he shows the inability of the idols to deliver the very thing that they promise. You know, why do we create idols? We we do so out of our own insecurities. We do so out of our sense of need. I need something beyond me. I'm not enough. I need something greater to acknowledge and to show allegiance to that's going to protect me, that's going to provide something for me, that's going to give me meaning and a sense of safety. And so we look to something that's going to give it to us. All the while ignoring the very God that our heart is longing for. But idols are poor God substitutes. They are finite created things that demand everything from us. And you sacrifice for them again and again and you bring your offering to them one more day and they are totally powerless to change anything about your life. And that's true whether your idol is a tiki statue or people pleasing. You go to it again one more time bringing your offering and it's brought you no more security or hope. It's not relieved one bit of anxiety. In your life. And Paul introduces them to a radically different kind of God. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath. And everything, the the road of dependence runs in one direction. We don't bring something that adds anything to God. He gives to us. We're the needy ones. We're the dependent ones in this relationship. And he is filled to the brim with generosity and spilling over. And worship is just seeing that he's that way. 
Worship is just acknowledging the God of fullness and weight. The God who's able to provide for all of our needs and be the object of our heart's affections. He's not some needy deity that demands our worship because he has self-esteem issues that go back to kindergarten. That's what people think as you interact with them in this world. We, we have nothing to, to give him that's not already his. We don't purchase any favors with him. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, imagine if a grandfather gave his grandson six pence and then the grandson uses it to go buy a present for his grandfather, right? You, your parents get this all the time. Can I borrow some money to go buy your Christmas gift, right? Uh, at the end of the day, Lewis says, the grandfather is sixpence none the richer. Which if you're curious, that's where the 90s band of Kiss Me fame got their name from that passage. But, but God is spilling over with generosity. He's the one who gives life and breath and everything. Now, now notice, Paul's just talking about the doctrine of God here. He's just living in who is God, but he's already gesturing toward the gospel. What he develops more fully in letters like Romans, the, the radical generosity of God who saves us all by himself. The son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and give life. And, and people are groping along for this kind of God. Even in a secular world, right? That doesn't have much of a guilty conscience. You know, moralism and performance-based goodness still abounds. We, we live in what sociologists have described as an achievement culture. Where, where the, the message, it used to be kind of your responsibility, your role, what you're, what you're supposed to do. You know, don't ask what you know, your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. There's a culture of duty, but, but now the, the, the message is, you know, anything that you want to be, you can do it. You set your mind to it, you can achieve it. Nothing's holding you back. Sounds freeing, that's incredibly enslaving. Because it's, it's just one more step before, and yeah, and you better be really awesome. Where that can becomes a weighty must. Because after all, what's holding you back? You got opportunities. Anybody can get noticed in this world. Anybody can open up an Instagram account and become really famous. What's, what's keeping you back? That is so restless and exhausting. As Matt Chandler puts it, it's like we try to run a marathon on cotton candy. But we get to introduce people to the God who doesn't need you to be awesome who saves helpless people and keeps the glory all for himself, he'll humble you. He will tear down your self-salvation project. But it's freedom like you've never experienced. Russell Moore says, let's listen to what our culture is saying, hearing beneath the veneer of cool, the fear of a people who know that judgment day is coming because it's written in their hearts. Let's listen beneath the cynicism to the longings there expressed in the culture. Longings that can only be fulfilled in the reign of a Nazarene carpenter king. Let's deconstruct what they and we tell ourselves when it's nonsense. But let's not stop there. Let's run toward and not away from the strangeness of an old gospel of a Messiah 
who was run out of his own hometown, but who, oddly enough, walked out of his own graveyard. This is Easter continued. This is the mission that we are called to, and it continues to advance. The, the fruit in Athens was small, but it was precious. There were at least two converts that are mentioned there. One of them is Dionysius the Areopagite, so he's a member of the, the council that Paul was speaking before. And I'd point him out because the early church historian Eusebius says that he ended up becoming a pastor at the church in Corinth, where we're going to be visiting next. And, and there's a woman named Damaris, and she seems to be a foreign woman who was in the city who encountered Jesus. And then Paul arrives in the city of Corinth. Corinth was another major city of Achaia. It was about 40 miles west of Athens. It, it was an old city that was kind of destroyed and rebuilt from the ruins. And so you would have found all kinds of new architecture and buildings. It was an up-and-coming area. And, and it had there the, the temple to the goddess Aphrodite. She was the goddess of sex and pleasure, perched on top of a 1,900-foot hill. And that just kind of give you, gave you a statement of what you might encounter if you visit Corinth. It was known for its prosperity. It was known for the pleasure that was available there, for its licentiousness. People came to party or to, to show up for the Olympic Games or to experience new business ventures. You know, if, if Athens was, was kind of like New York or Berkeley, uh, Corinth was a little bit like Las Vegas or New Orleans, right? This isn't far from our experience. And Paul received a vision while he's in the city. He tells in verse 9, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. Why does God tell him that? Maybe because he was afraid. Maybe because he was tempted to be silent. The humanity here is helpful, isn't it? Because we think of Paul as a bold man before the council. He gets stoned, brushes it off, and shows up in another area. And yet he, he faced all the same limitations that we do as well. And we often feel this way. Derek Thomas says, Likely it's the reputation of the city that frightened him. At least in Athens, they were interested in debating ideas. And Paul could speak of Jesus and resurrection, get a hearing. But not in Corinth. The youth in particular were more interested in sex and sport than in talking about religion. Much of what we face today. It's not always that people have these thought out belief systems and answers to every objection or question that you could ask. It's just that they're, they're busy living their own life. And it feels like they're fine. There's enough opportunity available to them. There's a sense of success that they have. There, there's pleasure to get here and now. There's a million distractions. And you come and your word about Jesus is just a little whisper in the noise of the culture. You feel that? You feel how large this task is? How immovable it is? How difficult it seems to be to make inroads in this place, sometimes the apathy can be overwhelming. 
and add that on top of all of your own inhibitions and fears and reasons why you don't want to start up a conversation with someone. But look at how God assures Paul here. And Eric, you can come back up, man. Verse 10. Why, why not be afraid? Why keep speaking? For I am with you. You could end the sentence there. And that's enough. Right? The God, God who doesn't need us is with us as we accomplish the mission no one will attack you from harm. But then he says, For I have many in this city who are my people. The sovereign God who sets the boundaries of nations, who, as Paul says here, locates people in the particular time and place where they live. You weren't born in this century, in this area, by accident. God placed you here. God put you in whatever place you needed to be where this good news met you. And he created the response inside the heart that said, yes. Whether it was the first time you heard that or the thousandth time anybody had ever talked to you, with you about Jesus. Whatever mystery that God does inside the human heart that causes you in the midst of your blindness and groping along to see, that's the hope I need. He does this. He has people in Corinth. He has people in every area, every nation, every culture, from every existing religious system that they're right now fully devoted to, every ethnic background, every race and demographic. God has purpose from all eternity to have people. Right? You see that from Genesis to Revelation. Genesis 1, 26. I'll, I'll say it for Pastor Peter since he's not here this morning, right? That God wants his image to fill the earth, every part of the globe. Genesis 12, Ronald mentioned a couple weeks ago that through Abraham, all the nations, all the families, all the people groups of the earth would be blessed, but they'd be blessed through him, through Jesus, not apart from him, but through him, it would erupt from Jerusalem and reach the nations. And that Revelation 5, around the throne would be gathered people from every tongue, every tribe, every political viewpoint, every people group on this world. God has a people he has purchased for the Lamb. And he will ensure they make it to him. But he ensures they will make it to him by sending us out and saying, I've got all authority. I've got authority over the place of their life and their world and I've got authority over this news to tell them, repent and believe. God is people in New Orleans. God has people even in Prattville, Alabama, <laughs> right? Uh, God has people in Kingston, Jamaica. God has people in Isan, Thailand. It's just places that people connected to us are going with the gospel. God has people in your family, right? God has people who seem unreached and unreachable to us. 
He calls us to go. Let's stand together. In 1732, there were two young German Moravian missionaries. They heard about an island in the West Indies where an atheist British man had 2,000 slaves that he had brought to work his plantation. And, and, and the owner said that no preacher or evangelist is ever going to stay on this island. You get shipwrecked here, we'll lock you away in a house until we can get you help, but, but you're not talking to any of us about any of that religious nonsense. We're done with that. And, and these young men were disturbed. They were disturbed, certainly, by the slavery. But they were disturbed by a, a more fundamental slavery that these people were being kept in. These people that had been moved from Africa to this island in the Atlantic, never to hear of Jesus. And they were so convinced they desperately needed this news that they said, we'll do whatever it takes. If we, if we need to sell ourselves into slavery, if that's the only way we can go there, that's what we'll do. And they went on their boats and as their boats were entering the harbor and their families and church communities were surrounding them, as they were sailing away, they raised up their arms and they said, may the lamb receive the reward of his suffering. And they never knew if they were going to return again. Today, the motto of the Moravian church is that our lamb has conquered. Let us follow him. He reigns. He's conquered death and sin. He conquers unbelief. He conquers every barrier that keeps his people away from the truth that's designed to rescue them. And he places the key in our hands and says, may the lamb receive the reward for his suffering so that on that day, gathered around the throne, are people from all over the place because they come through the one savior of the world. Let's sing together and receive faith to boldly go with good news. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He the theme of heaven's praises robed in frail humanity in our longing in our darkness now the light of life has come look to Christ to
Father's mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree, in the stead of ruined sinners, hangs the You just need us to trust that you are awesome. Trust in your authority and your ability and your plan that you have been executing from the moment it began. Help us to trust you, Lord, and to continue to, to live our lives in compelling and provoking ways to those around us, Lord, and help this gospel continue to advance until we get to taste that taste of deliverance that we'll see on the last day. Lord, for your glory, we pray. Thank you for this morning. Amen. You guys have a great day.